Okay, back to uh, Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Let me remind you guys that um, this is Paul's, this is a section of his letter to the Roman church where he is dealing with his doctrine of the church. That is, he's trying to describe things that would be true of a church that conforms to biblical distinctives, that conforms to a biblical pattern. And these are some earmarks. Uh, he gives you this great illustration up here about the body in verses 4 through 8. And <clears throat> then he's now he's giving you some characteristics of what this church would look like or should look like. Um, you may recall, if you were here last week, that what we did in verse 10 is I simply pointed out the two one, one another uh, portions of verse 10 which raised for me, and I raised for you, the whole idea of one anothering and the, the um, oh gosh, the 23 different one another commands in the New Testament. Um, but tonight we return to it to look at the specifics of verse 10. Uh, he tells us to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. So we have to look at those injunctions now that we've introduced the whole subject of, of one anothering. So that, we'll come back to that tonight. Now, if you were here last week, um, you, you may be able to better understand what I was meaning when I said last week that you never talk about money when money is short. Now, relax. We're not talking about money. Um, we're, we're talking about church peace, church unity, church strife. And no, there is no church squabble that is afoot. But, but, but even, even saying that is somewhat risky. Because, you know, in the minds of some of you, um, uh, you're wondering, well, I wonder if there's some kind of uh, fight that's going on that I don't know about. No, there isn't. That's why you, you, you never talk about money when money is tight. And you never talk about church unity when there's a fight. Okay? So, because there is no such thing, this is the perfect time to talk about church unity and church division and church fights and, and all of that business. So, um, uh, that's what we're using this opportunity to do. Fortunately, uh, we have a, a peaceful place here. And these injunctions hope will, hopefully will um, extend that. Now, guys, notice the first, there's two halves of the verse. He says, first of all, he gives two things in here. First of all, to love one another. And then the other thing is to outdo one another in showing honor. Those are the two things that we'll look at. I think everybody knows, I think all Christians know that we're supposed to love one another. If you didn't know that, then I don't know where you've been for a while. But uh, we're supposed to love one another, if I, if I may be the first to inform you. Um, uh, that is something I, I, I think is common knowledge. But what, what is interesting about this particular, uh, at least it was interesting to me, is that, that you know that there are several, there are various Greek words that are translated love in the New Testament. There's really more than three. I, I know that you've been told there are three, but there's, there's really more than three. You've heard of agape and you've heard of eros. Eros is a Greek term that's never found in the New Testament. So um, that's one of the terms, but it refers to sexual love. Uh, but that's never referred to, that's never used in the New Testament. But uh, agape, of course, is. And then the word um, phileo... There's, uh, you know, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. It's got that, uh, that, that root to it. Phileo or uh, philia. 
And there are all kinds of words that are combinations with that word. Uh, and what you find in verse uh, 2 is two combinations of words that, that start with that phileo thing. So, here's my point. In verse 9, you have love mentioned, and it's the agape word. In verse 10, you have love mentioned uh, really twice. Love one another with brotherly affection. And that's the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the translator struggling to give you the sense of those two Greek words. Both of them start with the word phileo. They're both describing a love that's supposed to exist among uh, brothers in Christ. But they're different shades of that. And the, and, and the various translations that are in the room reflect the difficulty that the translators had in dealing with those words. But, but the one that I'm reading, you know, I think is as good as any. Uh, love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, and uh, what, what, you're, what you see in verses 9 and 10 is that Paul is... is um, is covering all the love basis, all of the various possibilities that exist in the Greek language to uh, discuss or to, or to describe that love is supposed to exist between us, he mentions here. They're all in here. In, in, in two, except Eros, guys. That's not, uh, as you can probably figure out, I hope. But all of the other is listed here. Agape in verse 9 and those other phileo words in verse 10. Um to add up, or to at least to explain rather simply, um, what Paul is describing is that there, that the Christian church is supposed to be a mutually supportive family. Love one another with brotherly affection. Christians are in a family. We are spiritual kinfolk. Guys. The grounds of our relationship is never to be rooted in agreement, in theological agreement. Um, being devoted to one another in some kind of brotherly affection is always going to be in jeopardy if agreement is that which binds us together. Now, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that's what happens in the Christian church in the 21st century. Everybody's looking for a church that agrees with them in their own theological prefer, uh, uh, prejudices. But never is agreement to be the basis for our love for one another. Never. Guys, I've said this to you before, but I've been married to the same woman for almost 40 years now. And if my love for her was based on our agreement, we would have split up at about week six. Gang, and the same thing is supposed to be true in the church. Why is it that we begin to withdraw and withhold love because, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't share my view of this or I don't agree with them about that. And, and, and so everybody, you know, floats around the city trying to find, you know, where I can fit in with the most theological agreement. Ladies and gentlemen. The basis of our, of this injunction, the basis of this exhortation for us to love one another as brothers and sisters is not rooted in agreement. Let's love one another as long as we're on the same page theologically. No. No, ladies and gentlemen. And our inability to do that, our inability to do that just shows just how carnal we are. Um, this is about 
love. It's not about agreement. It's not, it's not about feelings, nice, nice, warm feelings. You know, guys, you, you can't muster up feelings. Feelings are always the result of something else. Ultimately, it's always the result of understanding or thinking. For instance, if I, uh, if I send my wife a nice Valentine's card and it says nice things, and she says, oh, isn't that sweet? Well, that's an emotion, and it's based on her, uh, the impact that this nice little card had on her. It had to do with feelings are always the result of something else. That is not what is in view here, ladies and gentlemen. We love each other because we're in the same family. We are spiritual kindred, and ladies and gentlemen... You don't leave a family because you disagree with somebody in it. Tell me this. How often do you think that happens in the evangelical church in the 21st century? Well, I don't like that, and so out I go. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a deficiency in our souls. It is not, it is a, it is a love that is not grounded in agreement. Nor is it grounded in the fact that you and I know each other real well and we really particularly enjoy one another. You know guys, this is not an injunction to like each other. Very frankly, I would probably prefer a few of you more than another few of you to have supper out in a restaurant someplace, you know? You're going to like some and not like some, you know. But that's not that, that's not what is in view here. That I would prefer to have supper with you. No, no, that's nonsense. You're not in, you're in, you're not enjoined to like everybody. But on the basis of our commonality in the same family, and in the fact that we are related to one another. We are called upon to make a commitment to love each other. Um, now, guys, stay with me. There is no controversial doctrinal viewpoint than that in and of itself is intrinsically divisive. The divisiveness is not inherent to the controversial viewpoint. All controversy, all discord, all division resides not in the points of dissent or the points of disagreement, but in the parties themselves. It is not the doctrines, ladies and gentlemen, it is not the distinctives. It is not the dissent. It is not the, it is not the doctrine that causes the dissent. I want you to see this. So just keep your finger in Romans 12 and find, if you can, real quick, James. It's way in the back. It's after Hebrews. And let's read this. Devastating assessment 
of people who name the name of Jesus Christ. In one simple verse, James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, James 4, 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's because I'm pre-mill and the rest of them are post-mills. It's because I believe in infant baptism and they don't. What's the cause, ladies and gentlemen? I mean, that's, that's pretty easy exegesis. Here's the question. Here's the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The word that's translated passions there is a word, um, it's a fun word because it can mean, uh, it can mean, it can mean some positive things. But the, the point that I would simply make is this. What is it that causes the discord? It is something inside of you and me. It has nothing to do with the particular doctrinal position that ain't it. It's our innards that's the problem. It's not the theological dialogue that's going on. It's not the, the issue. It's, it's, not, it's not that the truth or the, the, the theological viewpoint is intrinsically divisive. No, 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 no. What's intrinsically divisive is us. What's the source of it? It ain't the doctrine, folks. It's you. Me. It's our... Our deficiency to love. Guys, um, content people, they don't fight. So if you, if you like a good fight, it just, says something about what's going on inside of you. Because it's not the viewpoint that causes it. It's you. It's, it's, that, it's that lack of development of my soul that's the problem. Not the view. Um, you know, guys, um, a couple more things. Um just about this exhortation about loving one another with brotherly affection. You know, there's this. I mean, this this it's found a couple places. It's uh, this is not the only place it's found, but this is in Mark chapter ten. Um, <clears throat> Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands." Ladies and gentlemen, when we became a Christian, we may have lost one family, but we got another one, a bigger one. This one. We're, we're related uh, because of our commonality in Christ Jesus. But let me, let me do this, and <clears throat> because I hope, I hope this will encourage you. Guys, do you find that you have a... Um, a deeper affection for, a, a deeper understanding of, a, um, 
more in common with fellow Christians than you do members of your own family who are not Christians? Would you say that's true of you? Then I would say this to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a proof of your regeneration. That is a sign that the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence. And that this exhortation in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, is is happening inside of you. You find greater affection, greater commonality, greater interests, share more in common with people who are not your family because of blood. Um... You find greater joy in relationships inside the, the body of Christ than you do in your own family. That, ladies and gentlemen, I think is the thing that, that, that Paul would applaud. Uh, that kind of growing affection one for the other within the body of Christ. Now, guys, <clears throat> i got to hurry. i got 20 minutes. But here's the other injunction. It has to do with honor. Um, um, Paul says that we're supposed to be outdoing one another. In showing honor. Now, that's a hard word to define. Um, what is honor? I mean, he says he says much the same. I think this. <clears throat> I think the Philippian passage tells you a little bit. In Philippians chapter two, verse three, he says, "Do nothing from rivalry, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Um, I think that's a that's a pretty good definition of what he has in mind here. That is counting others in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Honor is is to be willing to let others somebody else have the credit. It's to treat others as valuable. Um, guys, Romans chapter twelve verse ten b is not an injunction to be polite. You know, after you, madam. Oh no, after you, sir. After you, you know. And, so, as if this is some kind of Uriah heap. Gang, um, outdoing one another in honor is that we're more interested in giving praise than we are in getting it. We are supposed to be people who joy in the elevation of somebody in front of us. I would say to you that so much of the illness in the Christian church can be traced to injunctions like these. I say that because that's the very problem that existed in the church in Corinth. Remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 even, and chapter 4 even, he's, I am of Osephus and I am of Apollos. Apollos and and um, Paul just really jumps them. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, um, <clears throat> verse 4, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely Carnal? Um, Paul was willing to let anybody follow whomever they wanted as long as Christ was exalted. But the remedy, guys, or I, I think the thing that, that spawns this kind of honor exchange is really something that he says in 1 Corinthians 4. And I, and I think you ought to look at this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, it's really the last part of verse 7 because it is a... Um, it is a profound piece of Christian ethic. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? This is part I want you to see. 
What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have? A good job, a a fat portfolio, a good education, an esteemed career. What do you have that you did not receive? It's all by way. It's all the object of a gift. And so God has decided to give this to you and that to me. All of it's come by way of a gift. And I think uh, were we to understand that, guys, um, I think we would find ourselves more quick to outdo one another in in giving praise instead of wanting it. Now, um, both halves of verse 10, I want to suggest to you a point to the great necessity of humility. Guys, there's just no place ever for pride. Um, Pride is never appropriate in any circumstance under any or, or any occasion. C.S. Lewis calls pride the, the complete anti-God state of mind. So if you are guilty of that, if we are guilty of pride, we are guilty, according to C.S. Lewis, as the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, guys, um, as I close tonight, I've, I've got 15 minutes left, and I think I can get this in. Um, because I think that the the, um, the reason that these are so they're such foreign injunctions, these exhortations that I just read you, loving one another with a brotherly affection, uh, outdoing one another uh, in honoring one or or giving honor, um, in showing honor. The 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 problem is the absence of humility or the presence of spiritual pride. When I started thinking about this text, I heard, um, I heard someone talk about Jonathan Edwards' book on um, thoughts, what is it, Reflections on Revival. That was the title of the book, Reflections on Revival. And uh, what this man said is that there's a section in this book, uh, it's about 140 pages, it's a small thing, but um, um, there was a section in it uh, where he defined spiritual pride. Uh, historically, there was a revival that was occurring in the in the New England colonies. Uh, it was before the Revolutionary War, and um, it was about 1740, I think. I could be off five or ten years, but it was in that, that period of 1740-ish, and there was a revival that was going on, and the revival had caused a great deal of consternation and division and squabbling in the Christian church all in the New England colonies. So Jonathan Edwards, being a pastor at Northampton, Massachusetts, um, uh, took pen in hand and wrote a book entitled Reflections on Revivals. And so he was giving advice as to how to manage and how to handle this revival, this thing that was going on that, that was so, it ended up being very divisive in the, in the Christian church. And so at the, in the, in the center of the book almost, he has this, he has this lengthy description, only as Jonathan Edwards can do. If you've ever read any Jonathan Edwards, it is laborious. 
uh, to work through some of what he has to say. I mean, you try to read his sermons and, you know, <laughs> gosh. But anyway, he's got this section in there. So what I tried to do is isolate this section and just summarize for you in, in a little bit different language, in a little bit less wooden language. He's right in the 1740s, and he's a whole lot smarter than any of us are. So he just used language that was just little. But he, he describes spiritual pride. Uh, believe me, <clears throat> I didn't write sentences like this. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Don't you love that? Nothing sets us so much out of the devil's reach as does humility. Now, of course, Peter and and James and Jesus, you know, grace is promised to the humble, God resists the proud. I mean, those are wonderful statements too. But, I mean, he's just writing something perfectly consistent with what the New Testament teaches. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Pride is God's most stubborn enemy. He that thinks himself most out of danger is most in danger. And then he gives, well, I guess I don't know where I got all that. I mean, it was in that section, but, but what I, what I extracted were seven points, seven descriptions of spiritual pride. What I'm saying, guys, I hope you're still with me. I'm saying that the reason that these injunctions in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And by the way, we ain't done. There's a whole lot more coming after verse 10 that are just as... The reason that we find these things so odd, so foreign, so difficult, is because of the presence and the absence of humility and the presence of spiritual pride. And that's what Edwards was saying about the reaction to this revival in, in, the, in the New England colonies. Is that the churches were... I mean, what would, it's one of the things that the, the preachers were saying is, those guys leading this revival are so young. They've never been trained in seminaries like we are. That couldn't be of God because there's, there's such excesses in emotions. And so they attacked it. And, and Edwards was saying, whoa! And, and he's saying, um, if, if God has authored something and you're opposing it, you're going to be in trouble, hotshot. That's my, my uh, translation of his words. But, um, but then he sets out and then gives this, this lengthy discussion or a description of spiritual pride. I'd like to give it to you tonight. I'd like to give it to you by way of a test. And let's just see how we do. Okay? It's just seven characteristics of spiritual pride versus humility. And let's just see how we do. Because, guys, um, to the degree that spiritual pride exists in any of our hearts, or in all of our hearts, which it does, we're going to find these injunctions in Romans chapter 12 and 10 and, verses, and the verses following to be absolutely impossible. We're going to find them strange. We're going to find, well, you know, I'll never be able to do that. <laughs> Not me. Uh, you know, I don't know what's the problem with that. I just don't like that, uh, that, that portion of Romans. No, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is. <laughs> the problem. The problem. All right, you ready? Just take a test. See how you do. Spiritual pride, again, I've, I've tried to rework his words so that we can all understand them. Spiritual pride disposes you to speak of other people's sins, whereas spiritual humility disposes you either to be silent 
or to speak of them with grief and pity. That is other people's sins. Humility means I am overwhelmed with my own sin and not yours. I'm overwhelmed with mine. You know, Jesus said something about that, didn't he? It was something about a a log or a beam in my eye and a speck in somebody else's. A humble man views others' sins as far smaller than his. That's just number one. Spiritual pride disposes you to speak of other people's sins, whereas spiritual humility disposes you either to be silent or to speak of them with grief and pity. Number two, spiritual pride makes people stiff and inflexible. You know why, don't you? Because they're always right. I mean, you don't need to you don't need to listen because you know you're right. Ladies and gentlemen, in evangelicalism, there is a brand of Christianity that I, I'm telling you, I want to run from a brand of Christianity that the only thing that they know is that they're right. I can't stand it. And and I, I think it, according to this, is a is a mark of um, spiritual pride. Number three, spiritual pride often separates because others are not as good as he. There's a tendency to be exclusive instead of inclusive. Number four, spiritual pride takes great notice of opposition of an affront. That is... Spiritual pride takes great notice of opposition, semicolon, takes great notice of an affront. Why could they do that to me? Don't they know who they're dealing with? Number five, spiritual pride makes one eat. Do you hear how silent this room is? I wonder why that is. I, listen, guys, I know why it is. It's not because I'm so stunning. It's because this is so biting. Spiritual pride, this is number five. Spiritual pride makes one eager to have others defer to him. Everybody wants his help. While for the humble, he wants help from everybody else. I mean, when I walk in a room, people want to talk to me because, you know, they need to hear from me. Whether it's over the Bible or whether it's over how to wire a, a jacuzzi. You know. Spiritual pride, number six, makes one forget the source of his successes. He said this, and I thought it was funny. He said, successful fishermen should not pay homage to their nets. Spiritual pride makes you forget the source of your successes. Corporately, professionally, economically, spiritually, ecclesiastically. We tend to forget. 
where those things came from. And then finally, the spiritually proud treat others with neglect. You know, guys, I, I, I will say um, one of the things that I seem to notice a lot is how people treat service help at a restaurant. The spiritually proud treat others with neglect. Now, how'd you do? Did you do all right? I didn't do too good. And so when I stand here, ladies and gentlemen, and I say, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another by showing honor. We think, why in the devil am I going to do that? <laughs> I don't want to do that. That's a little much. And you know why it's much? This is why. So, my brother and sister in Christ, we had a long way to go. We as individuals have a long way to go. We as a church have a long way to go. Um, if we ever hope to love like this, if we ever hope to be uh, anything remotely resembling what Paul is describing as a church in Romans 12, I would suggest a great place to start is right here. C.S. Lewis said that the first step in battling spiritual pride is to know that you're spiritually proud. So once we know that, the second step is repentance. Let's quit. Our Father, I, 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 um, I know that the, the quiet of this room is because we're all slain with our own failings. Every last one of us. And um, it prevents us from loving a right. We find it hard to give honor when we so desperately want it ourselves. And we, we are prone to, um, to split and to divide. And fail to love because we know we're right and everybody else is wrong. Would you forgive us, O oh God? Thank you for um, the insights of men who have gone before us. We're appreciative. We, we do believe that Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility does. And so none of us want to be gobbled up by him. And so we long for, we do desire. I, I think, oh God, I speak for your people as collected in this room. We long for a greater um, measure of spiritual humility. We know your word tells us to humble ourselves, and we will do that. We will take steps that will humble ourselves before one another. 
because we want to obey, but also because we want the joy of loving and being loved by a large family called the body of Christ. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.